This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So being a small business owner, anytime, uh, has lots of challenges for sure. And often small business people end up in some kind of debt, sometimes serious, sometimes not so serious. But the cool thing about this segment is that we're going to talk about business debt basics, common mistakes to avoid when you're dealing with a business debt, as well as getting some good information, getting good debt help for small business. And in British Columbia, virtually anyone can become self-employed. And there's tons and tons of people who are self-employed. And there's really no handbook explaining how to get the financial ins and outs of it. Uh, and that's why we're talking to Blair Manton, uh, who spends a lot of time, I'm sure, right, Blair, that you're talking to business owners who are struggling with business debts and 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 didn't know possibly some pieces or liabilities that they should have known either before they got started or as they start to wind things down. Oh, absolutely, Elaine. So, you know, being a small business owner can be some of the most rewarding times of your working life. It can also be some of the most difficult times of your working life. And to, to what you've alluded to here, Elaine, uh, the challenge is nobody sits you down and gives you, you know, the talk, the rules of the road, here's all the pitfalls. You can just start up tomorrow. Anybody can start up various structures, and we'll talk about what those are. And the government doesn't care if you don't know what you're supposed to do. Um, so, for example, I, I meet with people quite often. who They might have been in business for two or three years, didn't know they were supposed to charge GST. And what happened is the government has assessed them 5% of everything that they've sold as if they had collected it. Government doesn't care whether you collected it or not. If you were supposed to collect it, it's now your liability. So there's a bunch of potential minefields that if you take the right uh, steps up front, get a little bit of advice, uh, you can really avoid um, some of these things that can trip you up in the first few years of being self-employed. Okay, so where's a good place to start with this? The different kinds of businesses that people can yeah. set up? Because I know that when I did this a long time ago with someone, uh, it was this was brand new information. I had never even heard some of these terms as we sort of move forward on it. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting too because I don't find many uh, situations where someone you know sets it out pretty straightforwardly. Here's the way you can structure your business. Here's some pros and cons. But that's exactly what we're going to do today, and we're going to start right there. So uh, let's talk about how you can structure a self-employed business in the province of BC. So there's three common ways that you can do it. Each one has some advantages and disadvantages, and definitely uh, there's some escalations in complexity as you move from one, one structure to another. Uh, it's important to really get the right help at the start. So an accountant uh, and or a lawyer can be invaluable, and you don't necessarily need to spend thousands of dollars, uh, but in the space of a few meetings with a lawyer discussing your objectives, um, some meetings with an accountant so that you, know, you understand how your business flows and what your reporting requirements might be, um, that can be, you know, a stitch in time saves nine. Uh, that can really pay off uh, in spades in the future just by knowing all of your responsibilities by getting some help. 
in terms of how you can actually structure your your business, uh, the easiest way and the most common way is to operate as a sole proprietorship. Um, so in general, if you haven't set up you know, either a corporation or a partnership, which is what we're going to talk about next, by default, you'd be a sole proprietorship. And it's the most straightforward way to start a business or to become a contractor. And what it means is especially you as the owner of the business and the business itself, you're the same entity. You're not legally separated. The assets and debts of the business are also your personal assets and debts. And the income that the business makes after its business expenses, that's reported on your personal tax return each year. So if you're setting up as a sole proprietorship, um, you're not setting up a separate entity. Um, you're just deciding I'm going to do work in my own name, um, or you can, you can call it something else. But at the end of the day, it's still the same legal entity as you yourself. There's no separation. Right. Okay. That's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And definitely that's the most common way. And I find the simplest and for most people that I deal with, you know, that's the right structure. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes here. Um, you know, a second way to get it set up, and this is very uncommon. I don't see much of it. And it sounds pretty simple, but there's some added complexity which can make this very unattractive for a lot of people, uh, is to consider setting up as a partnership. So if two or more people or two or more proprietorships even are combining resources in a business, they could, and they're not required to, but they could establish formal terms and become a partnership, which is relatively easy to get underway. You just need a partnership agreement. But what's important here is that each partner is now personally responsible for the debts of the business, and they share in the liabilities of the actions of the other partners. So what that means is if you go into partnership with somebody and that person signs a deal on behalf of the partnership and that deal is a bad thing for the business and the business can't afford to pay, um, both partners could be fully liable and it's what co- what's called joint and several liability, which might mean you know, you've only invested $10,000 into the partnership, but you've got a lot more assets than that. All of your assets could be at risk because it's an unlimited liability if the partnership, uh, even if it's you're not involved, that your other partner does something that just doesn't make sense and incurs some liability, as part of that partnership, all of your assets could be called into question. So it's something you want to be very careful about. Uh, In most cases, people uh, haven't thought about that idea of the liability of all of the partners being joint and several when they consider a partnership. They just say, well, it sounds like it's pretty easy. We're going to be partners. Uh, But you definitely want to consider the downside of the liability. Yeah, there is a downside for sure. I I hadn't thought about that for sure. What's the, so yeah, what's I don't I don't see many I don't see many partnerships, and you know even a lot of the big accounting and law firms they're not set up as basic partnerships. They're set up as you know a limited liability partnership where there's a whole lot more structure behind it to try to you know again protect the assets of each individual partner. But for the average person who's listening to our our show today, uh, setting up as a partnership, just be aware the actions of your partner could impact all of your personal assets and your liabilities as well. Okay. When I see the word corporation, and I know that's the third one we're going to talk about, that seems like it, it has to be a big thing. Well, it doesn't necessarily, and, that, and that's interesting. So a corporation, again, it's a word that can intimidate some people, but all it means is there's a separate legal entity. A corporation uh, is essentially like a separate person. Um, it's someone that can hold assets, it can acquire debts and contracts, it can sue or be sued. So ostensibly, when someone sets up a corporation, what you're doing that is to create some separation between you as the business owner and the business's operations itself. So you'd want to say, you know, if I've got a bunch of assets that I want to keep safe, I'll set up a corporation corporation to run my business. Um, And then if something were to go wrong with the business, ideally, the corporation is going to shield me because the corporation will be liable. And, you know, I'm just the owner or the shareholder of the corporation. So sounds great so far, right? 
Yeah, really good. Right, but challenges abound. Uh, so the first one is, to your point, Elaine, it is more complicated, more costly to set up a corporation and then to maintain it on an annual basis. You definitely need to be incurring some accounting fees, some legal fees, uh, because it's not just your personal taxes anymore. It's the corporation has to do a corporate tax return. Um, there's various compliances for the province to keep the corporation in good standing. Um, so you should plan, you know, I would think at least in the low single digit thousands, you know, maybe around 1000 to 1500 for a basic corporation um, just for accounting and legal fees every year for maintenance. So there are the cost and the complexity. Now, the second part, which is even if you're okay with that cost and complexity, is unfortunately the idea of a limited liability within a corporation. It can be frustrated in several key ways, which often does happen. So the first way is if you think about you've got this business, it's a new corporation, you want it to go out and borrow money, who's going to loan money to a new corporation without the ownership guaranteeing those funds? So if a new corporation is going to go out and sign a lease, for example, it's almost every case that I see, they also get the owner of that corporation to sign personally so that the corporation doesn't pay, the person is still on the hook. So that kind of frustrates that limitation of liability. Quite often, if the corporation is going to borrow money from the bank, they also need the owner or the shareholder or the, or the person who's running the corporation to give a personal guarantee on those funds. So even though the corporation ostensibly is a separate legal entity, quite often the obligations that you're required to guarantee mean that the individual behind the corporation is still on the hook for the most important amounts owing. Uh, the last point on this just has to do with government amounts. Um, government, um, you know, they respect that a corporation is a separate legal entity, but if you start to run up money for GST owing, or if you have employees for their tax deductions or even for their wages, you're not allowed to just leave that liability in the corporation, shut down the business and move on. If you have a corporation that owes money to the government for uh, GST or for those payroll source deductions, that becomes a personal liability of the director of the corporation. So there can be a number of little minefields that sometimes when I sit down with someone and say, I want to incorporate because of this, 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 when I explain to them, well, you're probably going to have to guarantee everything anyway, and the biggest potential liabilities are the government, and they're not going to be stopped by the corporation. So do you really want to incur the costs every year of accounting and legal to do something that you know, might not actually protect you at the end of the day? And sometimes people do think twice about setting up a corporation. Got it. Okay. So what's, the, so what's next? Because we just have about uh, oh, a couple of minutes left in this segment. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, right? Because we've got so much that we need to cover. I know, uh, there's you know, a lot. Yeah, I think if we were to talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls uh, that people can run into. So we've talked a little bit um, about, you know, CRA debts, about collecting and remitting GST. And yeah. just a point on there is that the important number is $30,000. So okay. if you're starting to earn revenues of more than $30,000, that's typically when you need to start registering for GST. So what you'd want to do is there's very few professions that are exempt from GST. There are some, and I won't list them just in case it's changed, but you'd want to confirm with, with CRA based on your occupation, is it the $30,000 limit or are you just not subject to GST at all? But that's something you want to set up very, very early on within your corporation. Okay. Um, I think one of the bigger pitfalls that I see as well uh, is the idea of really avoiding some of the, the hard decisions or some of the hard analysis to do with your business. So, you know, you, you really love what you're doing every day, uh, but sometimes if when a third party looks at the books of the business, you say, oh my God, like you, you've really just been procrastinating. You've been putting off some of the hard decisions that you need to make. Um, so for example, um, you know, during this COVID uh, 
a pandemic that we're dealing with now, uh, it can be really difficult to look at your staff and say, you know what, I'm, I don't have work for you in the short term. But if you took a hard look at your business and what's happened to your revenue, that might be the right answer. You'd have to make that, that decision relatively quickly. What people often often default to doing is injecting personal funds continually into their business, You know, sometimes drawing down their home equity or drawing down their retirement funds. So it's usually a really big warning sign if you're having to basically pay money into the corporation on a regular basis or if you're borrowing more money um, you know, to keep things operating, you might be you know, avoiding some of the hard decisions that you need to make. So just make sure you're objective when you look towards your business and you are making some of those hard decisions on what, what can be paid and you know, whether you're willing to invest more of your personal funds into a business that might not be able to eventually repay it back to you. Got it. See, the thing is, when you start talking about all these different aspects and things to be on the watch for, or I would think that you would be the right person to talk to before I venture into something. I, am I right about that? Well, it, it depends. So it, as a trustee, I'm not a lawyer. So usually for structuring yourself, you'd want to have a lawyer give you some good insight. But absolutely, to talk through the hypotheticals about, you know, if things don't go according to plan, what's my potential liability? That's absolutely what a trustee can help you with. So, you know, it would be one tool in your toolbox, but I would still think you'd want the accountant and the lawyer to help give you some good advice on how to structure and then just sub, uh, supplement that with some trustee advice as well. Yeah, no, that makes good sense. Yeah. And cover as many bases as you can because you bring something different to the table than a lawyer would or an accountant would. And I, I guess that's what I was thinking about. Uh, so that's in closing, exactly right. I just want to remind you that there's lots of way to, ways to get some good information from sands-trustee.com. If you've got questions or thoughts, also give them a call and make that appointment, 1-800-661-3030 for the free consultation. And a reminder again, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's called Seven Money Matters You Should Know. So facts you might not have known, but you definitely should. So pay attention. Take some notes, I'm thinking. Right, Blair? That's absolutely. It's going to be an action-packed <laughs> 10 minutes or so here with seven really important things. And this sort of is a reflection of one of the lines that uh, Sands & Associates uses, and you use, not a, not a ton, but you have used it for sure, is knowing is not owing. So that's what we're going to explain, basically, is, is why that idea is so important. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to separate the fact from the fiction, give you, you know, some real concrete facts that you can rely on so you can make good decisions about your debt. And once you know the facts, typically it's much easier to get out of debt than if you're just flailing about and you don't know what's available to you. So that's why we say knowing is not owing. The first step is getting the knowledge. Okay, so the first piece is protected assets. What about our protected assets we should pay attention to? I think the takeaway here is that most people have a lot more um, you know, have a lot less of a risk than they than they think they do in terms of of losing assets. They've got a lot more protection enshrined in legislation. They're just not aware of it. So if you owe somebody money, and a collection agent is never going to tell you this, they might tell you, you know, we're going to be at your door tomorrow. We're going to be carting out your furniture. Uh, we're going to be taking your RRSPs. We're going to be seizing your wages. Uh, most people are experiencing collection calls. That's the stress that puts them over the top. Is really worried about someone coming to enforce and start to you know really impact their lives from wages or assets. 
but what people need to understand is every province in Canada, and BC is, is not, not unique in this situation, has, provides a level of exemption. So even if you are sued for a payment of your debt or if you have to file for bankruptcy, most people actually don't have any assets that they would have to lose. So what that means is if you have household goods, furniture, there's an exemption in BC law that no one is ever going to show up your, at your door and start taking your furniture away. Uh, if you have a vehicle, exemption in BC law says that if a vehicle is worth less than $5,000, it can never be seized from you. Um, home equity, for example, just because you file for bankruptcy doesn't mean you automatically lose your house. There's an exemption amount for equity, so it's not a foregone conclusion. Filing for bankruptcy means that you won't be able to keep your house. What's hugely important is RRSPs. So um, I know we mentioned this a lot, but it is important. You can never be forced to cash in your RRSPs to pay debts. So if someone is sitting at home thinking, oh my God, my furniture is at risk, you know, even my tools of the trade, my vehicle, none of that is actually going to happen. And even if you file for bankruptcy, you would keep those assets. So if you're worried about losing an asset because of a debt, speak to a trustee. We can explain to you provincial exemptions. And these exist even if you don't file a bankruptcy, if you don't hire somebody to protect you. You just need to be aware that what the collector is telling you is essentially an empty threat. Got it. I know that credit history and credit reports and all that is, is can be very, very important to some folks. Um, let's talk a little bit about the really good facts about that and what people need to be aware of. Well, I think that the biggest takeaway with credit history is to understand that, you know, your credit report, your credit score, it's just at a period of time and it's something that is going to change over time. So, you know, even people that go from filing a bankruptcy, which is one of the worst things you can do to your credit, they can rebuild, they can turn their financial life around as little as two to three years after that bankruptcy is finished and have a great credit rating, maybe even better than they had before they started. So I think a lot of people get really worried that, oh my God, it's a life sentence if I restructure my debts. I'm never going to get credit again. Uh, and the fact is, everything does clear off your credit report. The longest something negative is going to stay is typically six years. And that includes a bankruptcy. But most people, um, they're going to be able to rebuild their credit as soon as two to three years after they've done a formal proceeding. So the wrong decision is try to, to preserve perfect credit for your entire life, pay tons of interest and never save any money. The right decision often is to understand your credit rating can ebb and flow. And sometimes it's, it's a good decision to allow your credit rating to take a hit so that you can get out of debt. Mm, that's interesting. Hey, not everybody would jump on that idea in a hurry, would they? Mm -hmm. That's why it's so important to talk to somebody like you who can explain that part of it. It's so important. So can we well, talk and, about... And, yeah, and again, the, yeah. the bank validates you again and again. Say, oh, you got great credit. You know, even the credit yeah. ring, it sounds like something that you want to have. It just means that you're making a lot of money for the banks. You're a profitable customer. You got a high credit rating. Yeah, that's such a good perspective to have on it. So is it can we talk about some debt specific money matters that you that you wanted to mention today? I would love to. Great. Let's co-sign debts. Mm -hmm. So this one, that the takeaway here is to understand if you co-sign a debt, you really need to be careful. And most of the time, it's not a wise decision to co-sign a debt for somebody else uh, because you remove that person's ability to actually deal with the debt without impacting somebody else. So if you co-sign somebody else's debt, you need to understand it's not a limited amount of a co-sign. It's not a 50-50 or an 80-20 liability. It's a joint and several liability. So you might be co-signing a $10,000 credit card uh, debt, for example, to get to let the person to get a credit 
credit card. And the person might say to you, okay, I know if things go bad, you know, the worst case, I'll only ever hold you accountable for 50-50. But the fact is, the bank has both names on that account. And if the original borrower doesn't pay, you can be held liable up to 100% of the balance outstanding, regardless of whatever side agreement you might have made with the borrower. So you need to be really careful. Um, Often even getting a supplementary card on a credit card account, that could result in you being liable for the balance. So you need to be careful if you're getting a supplementary card on a card that has a significant balance. Are you implicitly co-signing that amount? Um, And really think twice before you co-sign. In my experience, it's typically just removed somebody's ability to deal with their debts. It hasn't helped with solving a situation. Let's stay with credit cards for a second here and add on this one particular point that we've talked about before about credit cards and whatever commitments come along with a marriage or common law spouse status, legally taking on your spouse or common law's partner's debts is, and the answer is is so interesting to me. What is it? Mm Well, the answer is not what you think. Most people think you marry somebody, you marry their debts, whatever their credit card debts are, they're now your collective credit card debts. That's absolutely not the case. So marrying somebody does not suddenly make a debt joint. It doesn't give uh, the bank the ability to collect from a husband or wife who doesn't owe the money. So just knowing that fact can completely change the decisions a couple might make for their overall financial health. And, you know, if one partner has assets and one has a lot of debt, the wrong answer is usually to transfer all the assets to the other person with debt, and then the couple has nothing, no debt, no assets. The right answer is for one part of the couple to preserve their assets, let the other member of the couple deal with their debts, and the couple is so much better off in the end. This makes so much sense, but who knew? Because, I, I, I mean, is that the way it used to be done years ago, that if you married somebody, you married their debts, or is that one of those sort of old folk, folklore pieces that we picked up on? It's all old folklore, but who has a vested wow. interest in, in correcting that misconception? Nobody <laughs> except for a trustee, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And the statute of limitations on debt, always an interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this one is great. And just, you know, in a nutshell here, it's to understand if you owe somebody money, sometimes the worst thing you can do is just continue to make small payments, you know, for the rest of your life there. If you know you're not going to be able to pay the debt off in full, there is a statute of limitations and it's only two years. So from when you stop making payments on a debt, if someone has not commenced legal action against you within two years, they lose the right to ever force you to pay that debt. They could never take you to court and start to seize assets or wages. So it's not a strategy for somebody early in their working life, you know, wants to build solid credit and things like that. But for someone who might be 75 years old, who has a bunch of debt that they can't pay, they could consider filing a bankruptcy, or they might just say, you know, unless these guys want to take me to court, um, I'm just not going to pay. And after two years, I know they can't ever take me to court and I move on with my life. So there is a two-year statute of limitations on all debts. Okay. Do you oh, sorry, want to all move debts, on? Excluding government debt. <laughs> excluding government debts. That's that's the most important, or not the most important piece, but an important piece, right? Because you sometimes think everything's included, but in fact, it's not in that one. Mm-hmm, and that's right. that sort of leads to the next one. Uh, not all debts are created equal. Yeah, and that's the point there. The government is on a different playing field um, than all other creditors. So where other creditors have the two-year statute of limitations and they need to sue you before they can really hurt you by taking assets or income, government has to do none of that. Their debt doesn't expire and they can start to seize assets or income with very little notice to you. So be very careful if there's government debt. You can still deal with it in a bankruptcy or a proposal, which a lot of people don't know about. uh, But if you don't deal with it, you can expect escalating collection activities. 
So the best solution, go see Blair Manton at Sands & Associates. Get an appointment. Talk about your situation. It's nice and easy to do. Sands-Trustee.com is the website. 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So much of, of, of either bankruptcy or consumer proposal, first of all, if those terms are new to you, especially consumer proposal, this is a great segment for you because we're going to talk about the actual process that's mm-hmm. involved in both sides um, and sort of demystify, I think, we're, we're going to end up doing that as well on the process, whether mm-hmm. it's from the documents that one has to sign and the impact of those documents. Am I, am I right about oh, of that? Of course, yeah. Okay, good. All right, so the first, so the first first uh, process we'll talk about is bankruptcy. Yeah. Is so that what you said? Yeah. yeah. So what Good. I wanted to do today is kind of get down the, the nitty gritty. So what actually happens if someone goes into bankruptcy, you know, whether it's you going bankrupt, what if your information gets shared? You know, what do you have to provide to the trustee? What do your creditors figure out about? And on the other side, if you're owed money and you suddenly get these documents from a trustee, you know, what are you going to receive? What do you do with them? What do they mean? Okay. Um, so I thought we'll go through just some general um, documents for a bankruptcy and for a proposal today. And Excellent. it'll be interesting. Okay, so, let's start. Yeah, I think one thing to take away here is that there's been a lot of things that have streamlined processes for bankruptcies and proposals over the years. So, you know, it's quite often if someone goes into a bankruptcy, you'll receive one notification and that might be all you receive unless you actually respond and say, yeah, I've got a claim. I want to know more about it. So first off, if someone files for bankruptcy, we've met with them at least three times, usually more than that. And it's by the time we're meeting them for the last time, we're signing a bunch of documents that then get sent out to the creditors. Okay. So the first document is just sending notice. So it's a notice of bankruptcy and of impending automatic discharge of bankrupt and request for a first meeting of creditors. So that's a huge amalgamation of things. And it's basically saying, here's the notice of the bankruptcy. Here's the notice that the bankruptcy is going to finish in most cases within nine months. And by the way, if you want to participate, if you want to have creditors to get together to meet, here's your chance to make that happen. So everything happens right at once. And if you don't respond to this first notice, you may not get a second notice. So if you're an active creditor in a bankruptcy, you definitely want to respond to the first notice that you get. Good. Now, what's included in the notice, first off, is the most core document that we ever see here is called the Statement of Affairs. And when someone goes into bankruptcy, they have to disclose some pretty important things about their situation. So first part is they have to disclose their assets. So an asset is any own that has value. Right. And on the Statement of Affairs, the first page um, is basically just outlining all the categories of assets. Do you own them and what are they worth? The one that I've got in front of me here, it's like most of the Statement of Affairs that I see, there's almost no assets. Just about anybody that files for bankruptcy, they sold off most things that could be sold at that point. What they do have, in this case, the person had some clothing worth about $50 at a garage sale value, and that's considered an exempt asset. So even though they filed for bankruptcy, if you got an asset that's considered exempt, exempt. You don't have to get rid of it. Obviously, we don't seize anybody's clothing in this province. That would be bizarre and weird. No, um, so, but also yep. your vehicle, if it's That's valued right. under $5,000. Yes, yes. I, I know I'm, I'm impressing very impressed. you. Yes. <laughs> I remember this. Yep. Uh, but it's really important. Also, mm-hmm. your furniture. And I think yeah. the most important phrase that you said there was garage sale value. That's, That's kind right. of what you look at, isn't it? Exactly. So when we're talking about furniture, household furniture, everyone's asking, is the trustee going to come to my house? Or when is the trustee coming to my house to take my furniture? And the answer is 
never, I've never been to someone's house to cart things out. You value your furniture based on what you could sell for at a garage sale. If it's less than $4,000, which it typically is, you keep everything. It's considered an exempt asset under provincial legislation. Um, we talked about clothing. We've hit on RRSPs again and again. They're exempt assets. Don't go cashing RRSPs in. All of that would be disclosed on your statement of affairs. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the motor vehicles. And then finally, real estate is the other big category that gets disclosed um, from an asset point of view. And if it's your house that you're living in, mm-hmm. what's that status for it? Yeah, most people think it's automatically, if you go into bankruptcy, you lose your house. It's quite often the opposite. Most people are in a better position to keep their house after a bankruptcy because they can deal with all of the other debt and still pay their mortgage. So what we have to determine is, do they have a whole lot of equity in the house? If they've got, you know, millions of dollars of equity, obviously there's going to be something happening here. But if it's a case like most people are struggling with their debt, they've pulled out equity over the years. They owe basically marginally what the house is worth. There's not a huge amount of equity. Most of the time, the statement of affairs here would show house is worth, say, 800,000 in Vancouver. The mortgage is 770. So really there's not much equity there. And the person would be allowed an exemption for at least the first $12,000 of equity. Okay. So that's, that's the key is the equity that you've got in your home already. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So then statement of affairs, the first part of it is the assets. So what does the person own that has value? There are three parts. The second part is the liabilities. So why are we doing what we're doing here, right? Why are we filing a bankruptcy or a proposal? Who does the person owe money to and how much? So what's important here is this is essentially the person's best guess. So it's not the case that if you file bankruptcy and you think you owe somebody $100 and ends up you owe them $300, you're on the hook for the difference of what you didn't include. It's not that case. As long as you make a reasonable effort to try to ascertain your liabilities, if they're a little bit off, it's still going to be all included into a bankruptcy. So a second page of a statement of affairs, you know, sometimes this thing can go for a couple pages at a time. If it's a person with their own corporation, a lot of suppliers, the documents I've got in front of me here, it's got four creditors, which are pretty typical here. Canada Revenue Agency for a student loan, Canada Revenue Agency for some personal taxes, ICBC, which we deal with quite a bit. And Mm. ICBC is another one of those government debts that only a trustee can help you deal with. Uh, And then this person owed Van City a little bit of money. So all told about $36,000 of debt in this bankruptcy, which is again, pretty typical from what we see. And the ICBC debt, that is just not being able to pay your insurance or you've done it on a a, a quarterly basis or how does that... There's a number of different ways it can arise. You know, in some cases, in this specific case, I believe there was a motor vehicle accident and ICBC was forced to pay out some money and then they go back to the insurance holder Uh, if there was any breach, you know, to get the claim paid out. Um, You know, if it's a very egregious breach, if there was drunk driving or, you know, intentional bodily harm or things like that, sometimes even going through bankruptcy won't help with ICBC debt, but that's a very small percentage. Almost in every case, ICBC debt can be dealt with. Okay. Again, good point about the licensed insolvency trustee. You're the only one that can do that with ICBC. That's right. And yeah. we've got a pretty good hotline into ICBC. So from the first time I meet with somebody, I get some information, I phone up ICBC and say, just so we're clear before we go too far, are we able to deal with this? Or are you going to take a different position? And oh, we get clarity right from the start. Excellent. Yeah. Sounds good. So the last part of the statement of affairs. So we talked about the assets, we talked about the liabilities, and then we just have to disclose some circumstances. So a lot of people, when they're restructuring their finances, they're worried that everything that they do to the world is, is open for everyone to inspect. And that's not really the case. What has to be disclosed is, you know, family name, given names, marital status, and date of birth, um, and then occupation. 
So there's not a huge amount more than that. It's, you know, not kids' names, kids' birth dates, social insurance numbers, all that stuff stays private here. You have to say how many people live in your household because that speaks to, you know, your budget and your ability to repay part of the debt or not. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty um, surface level basis of financial information that has to be shared. Okay. Now, do you want to then compare that to the consumer proposal and the documents there? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to move on to the comparison between the two? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting with the consumer proposal is that the documents are almost always the same. Okay. So you still do a statement of affairs with both. But the big difference with a consumer proposal is we're making an offer and the offer has to be either accepted or rejected. So there's two extra documents that come into the consumer proposal and they're essentially called a consumer proposal versus bankruptcy overview. Okay. So there's a document here. It's got, and I wish people could see in Radioland, but <laughs> it's basically a bar chart with two bars. And I love this document because it makes it so clear why a consumer proposal is in everyone's best interest because the bankruptcy bar is usually at zero because most of the time in a bankruptcy, after all is said and done, no assets would be seized. The person will just pay the cost of the bankruptcy and they'll move on. The proposal bar shows, you know what, you could take zero or house 20% or 30% of the debt or something like that. It's as simple as do you want something or do you want nothing? And I think this document that we're describing here is what helps proposals get accepted. It's a very stark reminder that bankruptcy is not a creditor option. A creditor cannot reject you from going into bankruptcy. And if the law says that you go into bankruptcy and they have to write off all of the debt, well, too bad, so sad. A proposal is a creditor option. They have the option to say, yes, I will agree to compromise the debt. Yes, I want more than I would get in a bankruptcy. And that's why the documents show those two options together. Yeah, it's really different for the creditor mm-hmm. between the two. And yeah. it makes sense. If you're the creditor, you want to go with a consumer proposal because you're going to get something. In almost every case, it's almost 99% of the proposals that we file, the creditors do accept them. It's not 100% because sometimes there has been some untoward conduct. You know, the creditors know they'll do worse in a bankruptcy, but they also know that they, you know, didn't enjoy doing business with the person, so to speak. So sometimes it's cut off the nose despite the face and creditors do it with eyes wide open. Yeah. But that's very much the small percentage. Usually it's, let's be unemotional. You may have a connection to the Royal Bank for 20, 30 years and feel very connected. They're looking at you as dollars and cents and something is better than nothing. Typically they will accept a proposal. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned the Royal Bank because it, it is your credit card, uh, your your credit card creditors. It's, it's your credit card people. They get something instead of nothing. Exactly. And that can make a difference at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Yeah. 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 One other document to talk about too. So we talked about the statement of affairs. So you disclose your assets, your liabilities, and some basic personal information. The other really core document is a monthly budget. So it's called a monthly statement of income and expenses. And it really goes into detail about who lives in the household, you know, whether it's yourself or other members of the family unit, what's their income from all sources. And then where does the household spend that money on a monthly basis? And what's really important here too, especially in a proposal, is we have to show if we're doing a consumer proposal, how's it going to be afforded? Yes. Right? Is the person going to be able to afford their rent, afford groceries, afford you know car maintenance and things like that? Because the last thing that we want to do is give them another payment that they're going to fail in six or eight months and be more depressed about and you know feel like there's no no other options. Right. So you got to make sure a proposal is going to be well structured. It can fit within the budget. Excellent. And it's really important. The budget is part of that process uh, in terms of going forward too, setting mm-hmm. something up that makes sense. And with Sands and Associates, you get that opportunity to uh, there's counseling. There's counseling mm-hmm. attached to it and you get to figure out where you might have misstepped along the way and what got you into that pickle in the first place yeah. you get to 
set it up differently so you don't step there. Yeah, you've got two financial counseling sessions in both bankruptcy and a proposal. And Elaine, almost every client that I speak with, it really surprises me and it gratifies me how much value they get out of the counseling. So just the chance to spend an hour talking about budgeting, about goal setting, about looking at compound interest, how it can work for you instead of against you when you're paying it on your debts versus earning it on your investments. Yeah. So yeah, the counseling can, you know, can be life changing as with the whole process, but you got to invest and you got to, you got to buy in along the way. And we know historically, whether it be through education or just being an adult in the world, we get very little of that information unless Mm -hmm. you really seek it out. We, we don't know how a budget can work or why it works or even how to set one up. Mm-hmm. And that's important information that you guys give. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so if any of this information is resonating with you, is there anything else you wanted to finish with before we wrap it up? I think just one last thing. If you are a creditor and you're owed money, I alluded to this early, but you've got to respond. There's going to be a form called a proof of claim form. If someone goes into bankruptcy and you're owed money, complete the proof of claim form. That's the only way the trustee will know to keep in touch with you and pay you some money if there is some money to be distributed. Excellent. So again, if something is ringing bells in your brain as you're listening to this and you want to take some action, give Sands and Associates a call. They've got a one great uh, 1-800 number. It's 661-3030, 1-800-661-3030. You get that first free consultation uh, and, and you figure out whether this is going to work for you or how it's going to work for you, as well as to find an office near you. And they're located literally all over British Columbia, which is a big bonus. And I know, and that includes Vancouver Island as well as the lower mainland. Uh, so dollars and cents, Blair Manton, thank you so much for all this good information. Thank you. From Sands & Associates. Welcome to Dollars & Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a good segment. I know so many people focus on credit ratings, especially when you're strapped or you're trying to make it a go, and then you've built up a certain amount of credit, and then all of a sudden it feels threatened, and you feel threatened as a result. So we're going to talk about your credit score, and from Blair, learn why it doesn't really matter. So I think this is interesting, Blair, uh, to sort of walk us through the credit score, uh, report basics, explain why you shouldn't let your credit score stop you from dealing with your debt. Such an important, important idea at this point. So let's do this. Focusing on credit ratings and reports, let's start with some of the basic facts so that we can understand this a little bit better if we don't already. Yeah, it's definitely an area, Elaine, where there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misconceptions, and really a lot of misapplied focus, from my point of view, on the consumer. And maybe it's because we don't have a whole lot of indicators that, you know, really say we're doing well or we're doing not, or doing not so well. So a lot of people really focus, they look at their credit score as a barometer of their overall financial health. You know, if the credit score is high, I must be doing great. If it's low, I must be doing terrible. And it's really not that case at all. We're going to talk today about how a credit score is built up, how you can access it, how you can correct some errors, and why it's really not the metric that you should be focused on. You should be focused on getting out of debt if you're in debt, saving money if you don't have any savings. And if you do those things, your credit score is a secondary consideration, not your primary focus. Now, I know that you've included in the notes that you gave me uh, about credit history and that it is a bit confusing for Canadians because the American system is so different. Is that where we get sort of turned around on it? Yeah, there there can be a piece of that because we get so 
much of, you know, our, our media and commercials and things. You hear about a FICO score and different things like that. That's just not a thing in Canada. Uh, okay. But what is a thing is a credit report, and there is a credit score, not typically called a FICO score, but a credit score. So what a credit report is, is a credit report's a summary of your credit history and it includes all of your personal information that's available via public records. So if you've ever used any sort of credit, you're going to have a credit history. So it's going to have information about your debts, when you open the account, what's the balance, do you make the payments on time, when's the last payment that you've missed, have you exceeded your credit limits, are they able to find you, so on and so forth. So for every obligation that you've incurred, or just about every obligation that I'm aware of, uh, it's going to report to either one or both of the credit bureaus in Canada, which are Equifax and TransUnion. So your okay. credit report, it often runs, you know, maybe 10 to 15 pages plus, depending on the amount of history that's on there. Uh, and each of your accounts, item by item, is going to be listed down with all of those factors. Okay, uh, so how's the score part work? Yeah, what most people think when they talk about their credit rating is their actual numerical score. And a credit score, it's a number. It ranges from a low of about 300 uh, to a high of about 900. And your credit score is calculated based on all the information that's in your credit report. So you get points for favorable actions, like staying under 50% of your balance, like paying everything on time. And you lose points uh, for unfavorable actions, like making late payments, going over your, your balance, uh, or having some legal actions taken against you. Um, now, a credit score, you can pay online, you can try to get an estimate of your credit score, but it's never going to be accurate because just about every lender is going to take the same information and come out with a bit of a different credit score based on their internal processes, their internal systems. So you can get a bit of an estimate, but you know, you might say, oh, I'm at 820. And then when you go to the bank and they're showing you at 850 or 750, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your credit report. It just means the way that they're calculating your credit score just could be different within that institution. So to that point, chasing a certain numerical goal in your credit score, usually not worth doing because you're never going to get it bang on to what the, the lender is actually going to be using. So is it important to know what the lender uses for their criteria? I think it's important to know in general terms, but you don't want to make yourself crazy about this. And, okay. you know, most of the time, what's important for good credit is just good financial management. So, you know, pay everything on time with no exceptions. That's number one. Don't miss any payments. Um, you know, an important one is utilization. So as I just mentioned, if you're paying, you know, if you're charging up to 90% of your available credit limit every month, the lender is going to view you as a lot more risky than someone that charges 30 or 40% and pays it off. So, you know, high balances and late payments, those are two things that are negative going to impact the score, you know, essentially no matter what lender you're dealing with. Okay. So how long do those transactions stay on my credit report? You know, what's interesting here, Elaine, is a lot of people are focused on, you know, the negative, and we'll talk about that if you miss payments or if you were to file a bankruptcy or a proposal, uh, but it's actually the case positive information may be kept for longer than negative information on your credit report. So if you've got an active account that's paid as agreed, uh, it's going to remain on your account as long as the account is open and the lender is reporting it. Um, so, you know, that could be, you know, 10 plus years where you're going to see, okay, this person, they've been paying an obligation, incurring it, uh, and satisfying it every month. Um, if you've got a hard inquiry on your credits, this is when um, you go and now to be clear, you checking your credit report or your credit score, that's never going to reflect negatively against you. But if you're going out, say, shopping for a vehicle or for a loan from a bank, that's called a hard inquiry if a third party is inquiring with the bureau about you. And too many of those are absolutely going to lower your credit score. And those hard inquiries are going to stay on there for three years. So you can imagine if you're looking at someone's credit score and they've got, you know, 20 inquiries over the past three years, 
you would view that person as a little bit more risky than someone who's got two inquiries over the past three years. The first person clearly is trying to borrow from anybody in town. The second person, you know, maybe they needed a loan, they tried to apply for it and they got it or they didn't, but it's just a different profile. Okay. Uh, in terms of negative information on your credit, the maximum amount of time that's going to be held is six to seven years. So if you were to file a bankruptcy from the time the bankruptcy is complete, um, six years from there is when it drops off your credit report. It doesn't appear there anymore if someone pulls a bureau. Okay. Um, so information can be kept on agency uh, on, on the agency information for six years. What, uh, what else should we be concerned about with that? Yeah, so that's you know negative things on your credit. So if you were sued for a debt, or you know if you have absconded, you know, essentially the last negative negative contact, it's going to drop off six years from when that occurred. And again, it could be a bankruptcy that's going to drop off six years. Okay. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is if you didn't file for bankruptcy, but you did restructure your debt. So let's say you did a consumer proposal where you paid back you know thirty cents on the dollar with no interest. Um, that's going to clear your credit report the earlier of six years from when you signed that proposal. Um, or three years from when you pay it off. So if it's a very short-term proposal, you pay it off in a year, well then three years after that or four years in total from the day you signed it, that's when that proposal is going to drop off. So even if you restructure your debts, even the most severe method of using a bankruptcy, it's not a life sentence. It's six years from the day it finishes is when it drops off. But also keep in mind, you can rebuild your credit much more quickly than just when something is going to drop off. Now, I know that you're a great believer, just because I've worked with you for a, t a, bit, of a t bit of time now, uh, that it's important for people to check their credit report. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely imperative. And, you know, I think last Valentine's Day, I was on the news saying, you know, that couples should be sharing financial intimacy and they should be checking each other's credit report and showing it before they ever move in together and incur obligations together. So, you know, maybe that's a little bit extreme, but definitely on an individual basis, we should all be checking our credit report at least once or twice a year. You don't need to pay anything to do this. There's two ways that you can do it. Um, you know, one is by mail. And if you go to sans-trustee.com, at the bottom of our homepage, there's a client resources link. There's a document you send away there, you get your free copy of your credit report by mail within about a week or two. Uh, okay. If you're in a hurry, you can go online. Uh, both Equifax and TransUnion during the pandemic, they're offering free access to your credit report online, but this is just a temporary thing. Normally, they're charging 20 to $30, which I wouldn't recommend that you pay. But in the short yeah. term, if you really want to get it uh, quickly, you can go to Equifax or TransUnion websites uh, to get a copy of your credit report at no charge. Okay. And again, let's talk about why you think it's so important that people should check their reports. Well, in, in simple terms, because it's often screwed up. <laughs> so every See? time that I pull my credit report, uh, I find addresses I've never lived, uh, uh, obligations I've never had. So you can imagine so many Canadians, so many data points. It's almost a foregone conclusion that there will be an error. And to correct these errors takes time. So the time to correct them is not when you're in the mortgage broker's office trying to get approved for your mortgage. It's not going to happen in that afternoon. But if you've got a couple weeks or a month's notice, you pull your credit, you get something corrected. And then when you need the accurate credit report, it's there for you. I just think that's the most important piece about this whole segment is that even you, somebody like you, who's inscrutable with your finances and, and how you manage it, and, and that's your life's work as well, but your credit report gets uh, a ton of errors on a regular basis mm -hmm. just because. Yep.
And that's me. So your mileage is probably similar. <laughs> Everyone well, should exactly. be checking. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's so important. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Make sure you go to their website if you've got more questions, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, give them a call at 1-800-661-30 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.